Hey, what's up, my friends? Welcome to the first episode of my newly renamed podcast. This is the Know Your Bible podcast with Jeff Olson, and that's me. I'm Jeff Olson. I teach the Bible, and I'm stoked that you're listening, whether you're at the gym or on a run or on a drive. That's where I like to listen to my podcast, usually on a, on a long walk or on a long drive. That's my favorite time to listen. Maybe you're at a table or in your favorite chair with your Bible open, notebook at hand, and your drink of choice in your cup. However you're listening, I'm stoked that you're listening. Thank you for listening. And I hope you're doing well as you listen. This is a crazy season of life for my family. Uh, that season of life is called tax season. And it's not crazy because we owe taxes. It's crazy because my wife works at a CPA firm. And she's done that since we were married. She took a little time off to raise the kids when they were little and then has been back to it for a while. And today is uh, Tuesday, March 16th which means yesterday was a business tax deadline. And my wife worked about 90 hours last week and about 80 hours the week before that. A month from now is a personal tax deadline. And so she'll be working overtime upon overtime and upon overtime for the next several weeks. It's kind of a nutty time for sure. I end up alone a lot. Two of my kids are away at college. My oldest works with my wife at the CPA firm. So they're gone a ton. Essentially, it's me and my two cats, Dr. Poofen Schmertz and Jarvis. And I didn't even want cats. I didn't want cats at all. Uh, why did I not want cats? Because I knew I would end up scooping the freaking box and feeding them all the time. Uh, but, you know, I'm the best freaking dad in the world. And I love my little daughter, Allie. And she wanted a cat so bad. And so I got her a cat. And guess who scoops the box all the time? And guess who feeds the cats all the time? You guessed it. The greatest dad in the world, myself. Thank you very much. So it's me and the two cats that I don't want uh, hanging out a lot during taxi. Sorry, guys, I'm totally digressing here. Anyway, I hope you're doing good. The Lord sees us through tax season every year. We've been through a ton of them. Uh, if you think about it, you could pray for my wife, Brenda. God, give her strength for the work that she's got to do and the, the stress that she's got to deal with. So I hope you're doing well, and I'm thankful that you're listening. And what you're going to get over the next several episodes of the Know Your Bible podcast is me teaching through the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is one of my favorite Gospels of all four. I think it's my favorite one for sure. I love teaching through it. I love how the author has built the book. Some of the ironies and funny things the author builds in. Uh, it's just a killer Gospel. I love teaching through it. So that's what I'm going to do over the next several episodes. I'm going to go section by section through the book. I'm going to comment on the text. I want to show you what the author is doing in the Gospel of Mark, how the author is communicating the message, uh, I'll highlight some key themes in the book, explain some difficult things. There are a couple confusing things in the book. I'll answer some questions uh, about the text. I'm going to crack some jokes along the way for sure, and ultimately want to apply the Gospel of Mark to our real lives. And my goal in teaching through the Gospel of Mark, as is always my goal when I teach the Bible, is that you would know and understand the message of the Gospel of Mark better, so that ultimately you would know and love God more. So in this episode, what I want to do is I want to introduce the gospel of Mark to you. And what I'm not going to do in the introduction of the book is spend a whole lot of time or really any time on the authorship of the book, like who wrote it, when was it written, what's the historical background to the writing and the times that it was written. Uh, you can read all about that on, in any commentary on the gospel of Mark. And those are good questions. Those are important things to know. But ultimately, you don't need to know any of that to understand what the message of the story is, right? So think about something like The Lord of the Rings. You don't need to know who wrote that 
story to understand the story, right? You don't need to know anything about J.R.R. Tolkien. You don't know, need to know anything about England in the time that he was writing it. You don't need to know any of the lore of Middle Earth. You don't have to know about the customs and habits of the hobbits or dwarves, right? Good authors put all of the information that you need to understand their story in the text of the story. And the biblical authors are really, really good authors. So when I introduce the book, what I want to do for you is I want to help you see, first off, the difference between the text of the Gospel of Mark, the text of Scripture, and the events that are described in the narrative. There's a big difference between the text and the events in the text. And if you don't see the difference between those two things, you'll miss what the author is doing and what the author is trying to say. So first, I want to help you see the difference between the text and the events. I want to show you the key theme that the author is driving at in the book of Mark. I'm going to highlight the main question of the text, the main question that we should be asking ourselves about the people in the text and also about ourselves as we read the text. And then I want to clue you in on the dramatic tension that the author is setting up for us as readers through the story of the Gospel of Mark. Okay, so that's what I'm going to do in introducing the book of Mark. The rest of that other stuff you can read in just about any commentary on the Gospel of Mark that you want. So without further ado, ado, there's a word I never, ever use in my real life. Uh, Actually, I have a lot more ado to go here, but I'm going to skip all of the rest of the ado so we can actually dig into the text and get going into the Gospel of Mark, right? So without further ado, grab your Bible, grab your notebook, and grab your drink of choice. I mean, unless you're on a run or in the car or anything like that, then don't. Uh, But otherwise, grab your Bible, grab your notebook, and grab your drink of choice, and let's get down to business. Okay, so the first thing that we need to get in our minds as we start reading any narrative text in Scripture is the difference between the text of Scripture, right? It's got ink on a page, that's a text of Scripture, and the events that are described in the text. And it's super easy when you're reading a good book or watching a good movie, we've all experienced this, it's super easy to forget that we're reading a book or watching a movie. We get caught up in the story world. It's almost like we're there, right? That's what a good book does to us. So when you're watching a good movie, like 37 seconds in, you sort of forget that you're in a movie theater with like a bunch of other people, like back in the old days when we were able to do that. Thank you, COVID. Thank you very much. You sort of forget that you're with a bunch of people in a movie theater, in chair. You sort of get caught up in the movie world. And it's the same thing when you're reading a good story, right? You sort of forget that you're looking at ink on a page and it kind of feels like you're there in the events of the story. And those two things are different. We are reading a text that is ink on a page in our hands. We're reading a text, and that text is about events. Like when we're talking about narrative literature, there are events in the text, but we're not there. The author is telling us about those events, right? So think about the story of Mount Sinai, right? God brings Israel out of Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law of Moses. And in the story, God told Moses a bunch of laws and said to Moses and to Israel, you need to do them. And in the story, they didn't do them. Now, it's easy to get caught up and feel like we're standing at the foot of the mountain when there's smoke and fire in the the sky and all that kind of stuff. God told Moses and Israel to do the laws, and in the story, they didn't. The question is, 
What is the author telling us about those laws and about Moses and Israel and about the fact that they didn't do them? Right? God's not commanding us those laws. We're not there. We're reading a text about that. So what is the author telling us about those laws? Is he telling us to try harder? Like if you just try harder, you're going to do better at obeying the laws than they did? Yeah, probably not. Right? Probably not. So what is the message of the author to us as readers about them and the law? It's, man, there's got to be a different way to find righteousness. You will not find righteousness by trying to obey the laws. Israel didn't. You probably won't. There's got to be a better way. And oh, by the way, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, there is a better way. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay? So the author tells us about God giving laws to Israel, but his message to us is don't try that way. They failed. You probably will too. There's got to be a different way to find righteousness. God told Noah to build an ark, right? We read that story back in Genesis. God commanded Noah, build an ark. Now, the author's telling us about that command. God's not telling me as a reader to build an ark. The question is, what is the author telling me about God telling Noah to build an ark? And the answer is that Noah was a man of faith, right? He just took God at his word. God said it's going to rain more than it's ever rained in the history of rain in this desert area that you live. So you better build a big giant boat and I'm going to get all the animals that I need on that boat for you. And, you know, Noah looked around and said, oh, well, that sounds weird, but all right, I'll take you at your word and I'll trust you, right? So the author's not telling us to build an ark. Really, the author's telling us about Noah building an ark. And the message to us is that we should trust God's word the way Noah did, right? So you can see the difference between the text of the gospel of Mark that the author is writing to you and me as readers and all the events we're going to read about and all the characters we're going to read about. And as we go along, I'll try to show you the difference between the text and the events as we go so that you won't miss that because it is easy to get caught up in the story as we go along. So we're going to be asking ourselves as we read, what is the author trying to tell us about these characters and about these events? And that's another way of saying, what is the author's message to us as readers? So in narrative literature, authors use things like structure and characters and settings and themes and motifs and repeated language to communicate the message. Those are the kinds of things that we're going to be focusing on as we go. All right, so that's the difference between the text and the event. I hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, you can always email me, jeff at revjeff.online, and I'd be glad to address this a little bit further. So let's move on to the key theme of the Gospel of Mark. One way an author will highlight the main idea or the main theme of a story is through the structure of the story, how a story is put together. Right, So you always want to look when you're reading, whether it's fiction or biblical narrative or historical narrative, you always want to look at the beginning of a story and at the end of the story and oftentimes what's in the middle of a story. Those three places, beginning, middle, and end, those things will often highlight what is most important to the author of a story. And in the Gospel of Mark, the author has used the beginning and middle and end of the story to highlight the key theme which has to do with the identity of Jesus. So let's look at the beginning, and we're going to look at the middle, and then we're going to look at the end of the Gospel of Mark, and I want to show you how the author has highlighted this key theme about the identity of Jesus. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Obviously, that's the very beginning. The author of Mark starts the book this way. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, 
the son of God. And that phrase son of God has to do with Jesus' identity. And I'll explain it more here in just a little bit, but I want to show you in the beginning, middle, and end how Christ's identity as the son of God is important to the author. So it begins, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. If you look down in chapter one, verse 11, Jesus is being baptized And immediately as he comes up out of the water, a voice comes out of heaven and says, you are my beloved son. There's that idea of the son of God at the beginning of the story of Mark. Now, if you go to the very end of the gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 39, you'll see the same thing. This is at Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. This is uh, 1537. And he breathed his last and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And verse 39, this is towards the very end of the story. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So here's one guy at the end of the story who understands the identity of Jesus. The author has told us the identity of Christ at the beginning. This guy at the end gets it. And now let's look right in the middle of the story and we'll see the identity of Jesus as the son of God highlighted there as well. This is Mark chapter nine, verse seven. This is on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus' glory is shown to Peter, James, and John. And a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Right, so you can see at the beginning, in the middle, in the end of the story, this identity of Jesus as the son of God is highlighted by the author. Now, what does that identity, the son of God, mean? In the story of the Old Testament, all the way back from the beginning in the Pentateuch, in Genesis through Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch, God had promised to send a king who would come in the last day to rule over all the earth forever. And that king would come from the tribe of Judah. This is Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. So as readers, we're flipping the pages in our Bible read-through in Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings, and we're asking ourselves, like, where is this king going to come from? Which son of Judah will be the king who comes in the last day to rule forever? And by the time you get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, God makes a promise to David. David wants to build God a temple, and the Lord says, no, it's not going to be you. It's going to be one of your sons. And so God promises a son to David. And in verse 14, he says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Right? So there's this father-son relationship between God and the king who is promised first to Judah And now promised to David, the king who comes in the last day, God will be a father to that king, and that king will be a son to the father. They'll have a father-son relationship. And we learn from the genealogy at the book of Matthew that Jesus is the son of Abraham and ultimately the son of David. And so Matthew's gospel is trying to argue that Jesus is the king who comes in the last day. And the gospel of Mark is arguing the king who comes in the last day, he's come. His name is Jesus, and he has a father-son relationship with the Lord, just like the scriptures said he would. Right? So this is that identity of Jesus question. Who is Jesus? He's the king who comes in the last day to rule over all the earth forever, and he has a father-son relationship with the Lord. So that's the key theme of the book has to do with Jesus' identity. Now, here's a key motif. I want to highlight a key motif. A motif is just a recurring pattern that happens throughout a story, throughout a narrative. And in the Gospel of Mark, one of the key motifs or key patterns that happens over and over again that we should pay attention to is watching people's response to Jesus. The author tells us the identity of Jesus. He's the king who comes in the last day to rule over all the earth forever. How do people respond to that? Do people get it? 
Do people respond well to that? Do people reject him? How does it go for the people in the story? And there are a few key groupings of people in the story of the gospel of Mark. One group would be, would be Jesus' enemies, right? So these are people like the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests and the elders and the Sadducees. These are like all the religious leaders of Jesus' day. These are, they end up being Jesus' enemies in the story. And the Herodians, these are like the political leaders of Jesus' day. So all the religious and political leaders actually reject the promised king, the son of David, the son of God. They reject the king in the story. It's kind of weird, right? If you think about like the religious leaders who have been reading the story of the Old Testament, right? They've been reading the Bible. They've been expecting a king who would come in the last day. And when he shows up, the people that should know him the best are the first to reject him. It's kind of weird, but we actually expect that. Like if you start reading the gospel of Mark, you already know these guys are going to reject Jesus because you've read Matthew right before it. And Matthew shows that all the religious leaders end up being his enemies. So as we read through the story, we're going to pay attention to Jesus' enemies and how they respond. They shouldn't respond that way, but they do. And we'll just highlight that along the way. How do his enemies respond? They reject him. How does the crowd respond? That's another question in the story. Um, the crowd is just all the people that kind of follow Jesus along. Uh, they're not part of the religious uh, or political leadership. They're not uh, part of the disciples. And they're following Jesus along and they're listening to him teach and they're watching him do miracles. How do they respond when the king who comes in the last day shows up? I'm going to give you a few examples, uh, starting in Mark chapter 1, verses 22 to 27. So Jesus had been teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. This is uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 21. In verse 22, the text says, They were amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Now, in English, that word amazed usually means something positive, right? We think about like uh, a guy on a unicycle on a high wire juggling, and we think, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. Look what that guy's doing. That's awesome, right? In English, the word amazing usually means something positive. To be amazed in Greek, this particular Greek word, to be amazed is not a good thing. Uh, what it usually means is that they don't actually get what's happening. They don't get it. Uh, an English word like astounded would be a better English translation. It kind of gets the idea of like, wow, something crazy is happening and we can't quite explain it. So they were amazed at his teaching. He was teaching with authority, not like their scribes. It's different and they can't explain it. They don't understand. They're amazed. And just then Jesus casts out a demon from a man. And in verse 27, it says, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? You see that word amazed means we don't get it. People don't get it. What is this? It's a new teaching with authority. We can't explain it. The people are amazed. And we're going to highlight that word over and over and over again. The crowd marvels or they are amazed or they're astounded all through the text. It happens over and over and over again. We'll highlight that along the way. They don't seem to get Jesus' identity. If you look in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, we get a description of what people thought about Jesus at the time. So Mark chapter 6, 14, and King Herod heard, heard of it, for his name had become well-known. That is, Jesus' name had become well-known. He's becoming famous. And people were saying, now this is what the crowd is saying about Jesus, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, right? That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So the people are not noticing like the identity of Jesus as the king who comes in the last day, they actually think somebody's come back from the dead. That seems to make more sense to them than that the king has shown up. Others were saying he's Elijah, and others were saying he's a prophet, like one of the old prophets. 
But when King Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, whom I beheaded has risen. In other words, nobody is really getting Jesus' identity. They're pretty clueless on who he is. And ultimately, the crowd generally doesn't believe in Jesus. Not only do they not understand him, they don't believe in him either. This is Mark chapter 9, verse 19. So Jesus rolls up on a crowd, and they're kind of debating and arguing things. And immediately when the entire crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed. This is verse 15, and they began running to greet him. They don't get it. Uh, Here he is again, and they don't understand who he is. He says, what is it that you're discussing? And one of the crowd said, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth, and he stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't do it. Verse 19, here's here's the response that Jesus gives them, and it highlights how people are responding to Jesus. How do the crowds respond? He answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. What does that mean about how people are responding to Jesus? He says, you're an unbelieving generation. You don't have any faith. So his enemies reject him outright. The crowd are amazed. They don't get who he is. They don't understand him. They mistake him for John the Baptist, risen from the dead, or Elijah, or another prophet, and ultimately they don't believe in him. They're essentially a generation without faith. The disciples, though, for sure the disciples will get it, right? For sure the disciples will understand the identity of Christ. Now, I'm going to show you some responses of the disciples uh, just as an overview right now. It's probably going to shock you the way the author of Mark portrays the disciples. It's not your usual Sunday school understanding of the disciples as lovers of Christ and fishers of men and followers of Jesus. He's got a pretty negative opinion of the disciples. I'm going to show it to you now so that you can get used to the idea so that when we walk through the text and I keep highlighting the disciples' response and it's almost always a negative, you're prepared for it, okay? So the disciples will surely get the identity of Christ, right? Nope, not so much. Uh, One way the disciples respond to Jesus is by not understanding his super simple and easy teaching. I'm gonna give you a couple of examples. Uh, Mark chapter four, verses 10 to 13. So Jesus had just taught the parable of the soils, right? And uh, the seed gets spread on some ground and it doesn't grow at all. And on other ground, it grows a little. And on other ground, it grows a ton. And in verse nine, he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. What is the key to being like the good soil so that like the seed grows? Maybe listening, listening closely. As soon as he was alone with his followers, this is verse 10, he was alone with the twelve. They began asking him about the parables. And in verse 13, he said, do you not understand the parable? And the answer is no. He's not wondering. He's telling him, do you not understand this parable? How dumb are you guys? How will you understand all the parables? And then he goes on to explain the parable because they don't get it. The disciples don't understand what it is that Jesus is teaching. And there's another example of this in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 18. So in this part of the story, the Pharisees are bent out of shape with Jesus' disciples because they're eating food without washing their hands first, right? Somehow that to them was a religious and moral problem. Now that's not a biblical moral problem. It's a traditional moral problem. They had made that one up, right? And Jesus calls him out on it. But they're all bent out of shape at the disciples because they're eating food without washing their hands and They come to Jesus and say, what is your disciples' problem? And he essentially rebukes them and says, why do you obey the traditions of men instead of the word of the Lord? 
And he explains this whole thing in verse 14. He called the crowd to him again and he began to say, listen to me, all of you, and understand this. This is not hard. This is actually super simple. There's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. If your hot dog falls on the ground and gets a little dirt on it at the picnic and you eat it, that's not a moral problem, right? This is what he's saying. It doesn't defile you morally. It's the things that come out of a man that are the things that defile a person, Verse 17, when he had left the crowd and he entered the house, and whenever Jesus enters the house, you got to pay attention, important things happen there in the story. His disciples questioned him about the parable. They don't seem to understand again, right? He just explained it. You eat food off the floor, it's not a moral problem. It's what comes out of you that's the moral problem. So they ask him about the parable, they question him, and he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not get this also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? You don't get this? Like, how stupid are you? I mean, I'm, I'm interpreting just a little bit there, but it's essentially what he's asking. How stupid are you? Are you so lacking in understanding? And the answer is yes. Whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him because it doesn't go into his heart. It goes into his stomach. In my English Bible, the New American Standard says, and is eliminated, <laughs> The Greek text says it goes into his stomach and then into the toilet. It's from within, out of the heart of men that proceed the evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders and adulteries. All these evil things proceed from within, and they're the ones that defile a man, and you don't get it. So Jesus has some pretty simple teaching. It's not that hard. And the disciples are pretty clueless, and they keep asking him to explain because they don't understand. So the disciples don't understand Jesus' easy teaching. The author portrays the disciples as guys who are afraid most of the time and not having faith. It's a big problem to be afraid in this text. And the disciples are afraid a lot. This is Mark chapter 4, verses 40 and 41. Jesus and the disciples are on the sea. Uh, Jesus is taking a nap. And uh, the storm comes up and the disciples are freaking out. And they go wake Jesus up. And they say, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you even care about us? Oh, poor us. Verse 39, he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down. And it became perfectly calm. Verse 40, and, when he, and he said to them, why are you afraid? Being afraid is never a good thing in this text. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And what is the answer? The answer is, yeah, you have no faith because you're afraid. And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Not only are they afraid and unbelieving, they don't know who Jesus is. They ask the question, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples are afraid and they have no faith. The author also portrays them as guys whose hearts are hard. Look at, uh, we can look at Mark chapter 6, verse 52. In this story, Jesus uh, came walking to the disciples on the water in the middle of a storm. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost. This is Mark 6, 49. Wrong. We know the authors told us this is the son of God, the king who comes in the last day to rule over all the earth forever. And they think he's a ghost. And they all saw him and they were terrified. Uh-oh, that's not good. Being afraid is not good. Immediately he spoke with them and he said to them, take courage, it's I. Do not be afraid. Being afraid is not a good response to Jesus. He got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. There's that word, amazed, astonished. 
right? Dumbfounded. They don't get it. Verse 52, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened, right? So just in this one little passage, the authors portrayed them as not knowing who Jesus is. They think he's a ghost. They're afraid when they shouldn't be. They're astonished. They don't get him. They hadn't gained any insight from uh, Jesus' miracle where he uh, fed the crowd. And on top of all that, their heart is hard. The disciples don't get it, and their hearts are hard. This is a problem. Look at Mark uh, Mark chapter 8. We'll look at verses 4 and 17 for another example of this. So in Mark chapter 8, Jesus has fed the 4,000, right? There's 4,000 people, and there's no food around. And his disciples in verse 4 say, Where will anybody be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Well, guys, in Mark chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus just fed 5,000 people. So when his disciples say, Where will anybody get enough bread? All they needed to do is turn back like one page in their gospel. They didn't have a gospel of Mark, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like they just went through the feeding of the 5,000 and now they're like, "Uh, I don't know what we're going to do out here. Okay. Again, clueless disciples and not understanding what's going on, not getting it. Jesus ultimately feeds the 4,000 people and the Pharisees come out and want to argue with him about it. And they want a sign from heaven in order to test him. And he's like, are you kidding? Like, what the heck do you think that just was? So they're rejecting Jesus, even though he's performing miracles. Verse 13, leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have any more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was saying, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Right? So watch out. Don't be influenced by guys like that. Verse 16, they don't get it. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. He's not talking about bread. He's talking about the influence of the Pharisees and the influence of Herod. And Jesus, aware that they are completely clueless, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? And the answer is, they do not see nor understand. Do you have a hardened heart? That's verse 17. Uh Uh-oh, that's a problem. That's a big problem. So they don't see, they don't understand, and their hearts are hard. So they don't understand his teaching. They're afraid without faith. Their hearts are hard. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 50, all of them bail on him in the end. So how do the disciples respond? They'll get Jesus, right? The kings come, and they'll bow down, and they'll respond positively, right? Wrong. The disciples essentially are as clueless and as unbelieving and as hard-hearted as everybody else in the story. Right now, I just gave you a highlight of that when we walk through the text. I'm going to keep showing it to you. And I know it's hard to believe because we think, well, they're the disciples and they got to be believers and right, they got to be the good guys. And this is part of the tension that the author is setting us up for. And I'm going to show you this in a minute, but I'm going to keep highlighting the, the disciples' response because if you just read quickly and you're not thinking clearly about what you're reading, you assume they're good guys all the time even though the author's portraying them negatively, okay? Enemies reject Jesus. Crowd doesn't get it. They misunderstand who he is and they don't believe. And the disciples are clueless and afraid and unbelieving and they're hard-hearted too. So that's the key motif we're gonna take a look at. How do people respond to the king who comes in the last day, the son of God? Now, the author is setting up for us as readers a dramatic tension here. 
And this is important. And again, we're going to highlight it as we go, but I want you to be aware of it at the start. There's this dramatic tension the author is setting up for us as readers. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we as readers know the identity of Jesus from the start of the story. He's the king. He's the king promised in the story of the Old Testament who come in the last day to rule over all the earth forever. He's the son of God, right? We know that from the beginning, the very first phrase of the story. We know this. And none of the people in the story that we expect to get it do, right? They don't get it. Enemies don't get it. The crowd don't get it. Even the disciples don't get it. Now, here's an irony, by the way. The demons always get it. The demons are very clear about the identity and authority of Jesus, unlike pretty much everybody else in the story. And I'll highlight that as we go along. But as readers, we know the identity of Christ from the start. He's the king. None of the people that we expect to get it do. And now the author is setting us up to have tension as we travel all along with Jesus and the disciples in the story. We're so, supposed to be on the same team, right? Like we're in the boat with them and we're, we're walking along watching Jesus do miracles. We're on that side of the disciples and Jesus. And the tension is you get it and they don't. And you accept Jesus' identity and his mission and they're clueless about it. And you show up in Jerusalem and you're ready to walk to the cross with him, right? You would never abandon him, but they do. And you won't let fear or unbelief keep you from telling the good news about who Jesus is, but they do. And as we read the story, the author sets us up to be frustrated with the disciples. It's like, gosh, those freaks. What the heck is their problem? How stupid could they be? And it's like the author has his arm around us as we read and he's pointing at him going, look at those guys, man. How dumb are they? How hard-hearted are they? How afraid are they? How is it that they don't get Jesus' easy teaching? You do, right? You do, right? And then the author turns his text on us as a mirror and asks us that question. You get Jesus' identity, don't you? You understand Jesus is the king who comes in the last day, who rules over all the earth forever. And you respond to him with faith and love and submission, unlike everybody else in the text, right? You believe the good news, right? Mark chapter one, verse one. This is the beginning of the good news. Of Jesus Christ, the son of God. What is the good news? The great king has come to give new life to anybody who would trust him. You believe the good news, right? Nobody in the story does, but you do, right? So we have this tension with the disciples as we read and we're frustrated with them. And the author says, you get it right. And if not, The author wants to help us get it. The author's highlighting the identity of Christ and the authority of Christ, and he's highlighting an appropriate response to Christ by showing us a million inappropriate responses to Christ. If we don't get it, and there are times, listen, in our lives where we don't get it, and we don't respond to the king the way that we should, and the author shows that to us in a mirror as we're frustrated with those dumb disciples who don't obey at a simple command and we're frustrated and then we realize, oh, neither do I sometimes. They don't seem to, you know, get Jesus' teaching and embrace it with faith and trust and walk the path of Christ like we totally would all the time, right? Oh, sometimes I don't either. And so we're frustrated and the author turns his text on us as a mirror and asks us these questions. Do you get Jesus? Do you follow him as king? Do you trust him? Do you submit to him? Do you love him? And do you believe the good news, right? If not, the author wants to help us know Jesus and believe in Jesus. 
And if we do get the identity of Christ and we do believe the gospel, he wants to help us as well because we can be just as clueless and weak and faithless as the disciples can. And I don't know about you, man. All all you got to do is take any five-minute slice of my life, and I probably have something in there that I need to be repenting of. Some dumb thing where I'm just like, oh my gosh, there that was again. And if you were reading the story of my life like we're reading the story of the disciples' life, you'd probably be frustrated with me too. All right, so there's a quick overview of some of the important things that we need to know heading into our study in the Gospel of Mark. You know the difference between the text that we're reading and the events portrayed, and I want to highlight that difference all along so you don't forget it, right? We're asking, what is the author telling me about these things? What is his message to readers like us? You know the key theme, right? That Jesus is the Son of God, that is, he is the King who will come in the last day, promised to Abraham through the tribe of Judah, he'll be a son of David, and he will be a son to God, and God will be a father to him. You know that key theme, that identity of Christ. And Mark tells us the king has come. And you know the key motif here, and we're going to look at this throughout, the repeated pattern of people's responses to Jesus. So we'll notice how people are responding to Christ in the story, and then we'll ask ourselves the question over and over and over again as we go, how am I responding to the king? All right, dig it. So in these podcast episodes, one thing I really want to do is have some interaction with you, right? So I'm gonna have a segment at the end of every episode where either I ask you a question and ask you to respond to me, email me a response or something like that, or maybe you email me a question and I respond to it in this segment. And in the last episode, I asked for your response. I asked you a question and I said, are you at a church with a faithful Bible teaching pastor or a faithful Bible teaching Sunday school teacher or ministry leader that you love that helps you grow in the word, right? I want to hear about those people. Local preachers and teachers just don't get nearly enough credit for faithfully shepherding God's people through the word. They don't get nearly enough credit. And maybe you're thankful and you show them appreciation. and That's awesome. You should. But by and large, they don't get nearly enough credit. Usually it's the famous people. It's the guys that have giant churches or the men and women that write books that get all the credit. And I want to shout out your local guy or gal who lays the word down on you, who helps you grow in the word, helps you know God and love God more. So I asked you to email me at jeff at revjeff.online, what church you're at, what town are you in? And I wanted to know the name of your local teacher and preacher that helps you grow in the word. And I got a great response from an old high school friend, actually. Uh, Her name is Karen. And it's so awesome that I just want to read the whole thing. Like, I was kind of just asking for, like, what church do you go to? What town are you in? And what's your Bible teacher's name? And I wanted to shout him out. Karen just actually shouted out her pastor, like, straight up. And it's so awesome. Like, any pastor, any Bible teacher, any Sunday school leader, ministry leader would love, love to have their people think about them like this. I'm just going to read you the whole thing and I'm going to shout out her pastor as we wrap up this episode. Karen says, I'm so thankful for my pastor, Danny Lamonte at First Evangelical Free Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. He's real, leading us to be a people in progress towards becoming more like Jesus, continually learning more about him, loving him more and bringing others along for the ride. He came to the church during the last few months of 2019 from Texas, not long before COVID came into our lives. And as a new pastor, he was thrown into navigating an unknown world of keeping the church connected remotely and then reopening while following local guidelines. 
During the chaos, he led us to look outside of our own circumstances and come alongside the community, namely teachers and school staff, through this crazy time. When other churches were experiencing declining numbers, giving, and stagnation while their buildings were closed, First Free has continued to grow. About a year ago, for Easter week, he started a daily meeting on Facebook with a live devotion every weekday morning, in addition to the Sunday sermon. It was a great way for everyone to be together when we signed on live and even gave us the chance to catch it anytime throughout the day if we couldn't be there in the morning. Because it provided such a great sense of connection during a time when few people were leaving their homes, Danny felt called to continue these daily live broadcasts and still does it every day. I'm pausing Karen for one second. I mean, this dude rules, just laying the word down live every day for seven or eight minutes. That's awesome. Okay, back to Karen. It's truly something I look forward to each morning, about seven minutes of encouragement, accountability, being challenged, and celebrating who God is. Danny loves the Bible and discovering what it says about the way we should live our lives. We've been doing a Meet Jesus series working through Luke for a little over a year. Having, to, having come to know Christ as a college student, he longs to reach those who don't yet know Christ, and he encourages us all to seek to share Christ with other people. He's not afraid to be vulnerable, models continually challenging his own preconceived notions to discover where they may not line up with God's word. He works together seamlessly and humbly with the other pastors and the staff and the elder board. I am very thankful that after moving to Lincoln, we first visited First Free the week his candidacy was announced, and I'm even more thankful that God called this man and his family to serve here. Man, I'll tell you what, uh, Karen, thank you so much for sharing that about Danny. If I were Danny, I would be so stoked to be hearing this kind of response to him from one of his church members like you. So thank you for sharing that. Hey, God bless Danny Lamani at First Free in Lincoln, Nebraska. May he keep up the work of laying the word on them suckers week in and week out, day in and day out, as the case may be right now. If you have a pastor or a Bible teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a ministry leader that lays the word on you and helps you grow in the word, I want to shout them out too. So I want you to just email me, jeff at revjeff.online. Let me know the church you're at and the town you're in and your local teacher, preacher, ministry leader that lays the word on you and helps you grow in the word. Man, I want to shout them out. So email me, jeff at revjeff.online. If you have any questions for me about the Gospel of Mark, if you have any questions for me, really about anything, I'm, I'm down to answer them. If you want to know what I thought about the Super Bowl this year, if you want to know what I think about the upcoming Major League Baseball season, I'm down. If you want to know what I thought about the Grammys, I'm into that as well. Uh, yeah, so if you got a question for me about the text or about anything, I'd be happy to answer it on the podcast. If you got any comments for me, uh, there's something you like, something you didn't like, feel free to lay them on me as well, jeff at revjeff.online. So that's all I got for you in this episode. I look forward to hearing from you, some of your shout outs, your questions and comments. Appreciate you spending the time with me. I pray your week rules that you're digging into the word and loving the Lord. And as always, my name is Jeff Olson. I teach the Bible and I will check you later. Well, I've a